We are so glad that you're here with us, and I want to thank you for taking the time to watch this video. I hope that all of these are an encouragement to you, and we certainly pray that the Lord blesses you and gives you hope in your heart and also keeps you healthy and takes care of all of your needs. As a father and a shepherd, we know that he does that, and so we want to walk by faith and not by sight and have the hope of God, the hope of Christ, living in our heart and coming out through everything that we do. We also want to do this as a testimony to the generations that are coming behind us because uh, they watch us. And this is what Asaph is particularly concerned with. If you go back and just kind of review Psalm 78, in the first few verses he talks about what we are to tell the children. Now, isn't it interesting that when the Bible talks here in this psalm, about the concerns with the children, and yet it doesn't address the children at all. In fact, let's just be honest, as the Bible addresses this situation with the children, it addresses the generation that is the older generation, we might say. In other words, we might look at this present generation and say they're soft, they're spoiled, they're entitled, they're, uh, you know, they don't have any faith and, and they're immoral and all of those. And the Lord might just go, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, you raised them. And I know that there are those times when we, do, we raise our children right and they turn the wrong way. We understand that. Even God's children do that and he's a perfect father. At the same time, though, don't we need to kind of look and take some responsibility that maybe we didn't raise them as perfectly as we think we did? And maybe as we think about what the Bible says in Psalm, I believe it's 127, that children are like arrows that we launch into the next generation. We all kind of get that. But what if the problem is not with the arrow, but it's with the bow? Because we would be the bow. And what made me think of that is you'll notice in just a moment when we read the text, it's going to talk about God's people being like a, he calls it, a deceitful bow. Well, what good is a deceitful bow? You can have a perfect arrow, but if the bow is not any good, then you really, it, well, it's useless. And the deceitful bows, the ones that you couldn't aim, the ones that wouldn't shoot far enough, the ones that weren't true, they would take those and they would discard them. I want you to think about that imagery and think about the children of Israel that came out of Egypt. Did they ever go into the promised land? Well, with the exception of Joshua and Caleb, no. That was a generation that was discarded like a deceitful bow. But Asaph here is going to talk to us about the next generation, the generation that did go into the promised land. And you know what happened? they turned out not to be any better than their fathers were. You see, there's this idea that we think that we're going to provide for our children, teach our children, and train our children so that they will have advantages that we didn't have. And that's a noble thing. We should do that. We want them to uh, achieve greater things because they are, again, like arrows that are going to go where we could never go. But Sometimes it doesn't happen like that. In fact, according to what we read in the Bible, maybe most of the time it doesn't happen like that. Because if we as the fathers, and I don't mean that simply to say the men, uh, maybe we should say parents, the ancestors, maybe the problem is if our hearts aren't affected 
by the things that we learn and the things that we say we believe and the things that we teach our children, maybe it doesn't reach their heart either. Someone told me one time about preaching. A message worked up in the mind will reach other minds, but a message that comes from the heart will touch other hearts. Well, there's the target. I remember hearing a preacher one time when he was shaking hands at the back door. Somebody said, well, you stepped on my toes today, Reverend. And he goes, well, I missed. I was aiming for your heart. And that's really what it's all about, affecting the heart, affecting the heart. When we're preaching, when we're teaching, when we're witnessing, we want to touch the heart. But do we fail to do that sometimes with the younger generation? And I'm afraid we do. I'm afraid sometimes we use the Bible, we use church, we use the Ten Commandments, those type of things for behavior modification. And then as soon as they're out of the house, they revert back to what they really want to do because we haven't affected the heart. And that seems to me to be, well, we might say uh, the heart of the matter in Psalm 78. How do you get a hold of the heart? Well, we're going to read a couple of verses today. Um, I thought we might finish it up this week, but uh, kind of got stopped here uh, with this particular thought. Look at verse 56 in Psalm 78. Yet they tested and provoked the Most High God and did not keep His testimonies, but turned back, they went the wrong way in other words, and acted unfaithfully like their fathers. They became like the people that they probably swore they would never be like. They became them. They turned into them. And they were turned aside like a deceitful or a useless bow. For they provoked him, God, to anger with their high places. That's where they would set up the worship of idols. And they moved him to jealousy with their carved images. So there's the idea of idolatry. What did the first generation do? They made the golden calf. And how did that translate into the way that they lived? Constantly complaining. There was never the right food, never enough water. There was never anything that was right. They were ready to go back to Egypt. Remember that? And then when they get to Kadesh Barnea where it's time to cross the Jordan, they don't want to do it. They heard the testimony of the spies and 10 of the 12 spies said, there's no way we can do this. We don't have the resources. We don't have the power. We don't have any of that. And uh, we, it, it can't be done. Joshua and Caleb were the only ones that said, God's put them in our hands. Let's go. Let's do this. Well, they believed the majority report. And in believing that, they decided not to go. And God said, okay, then now we'll just wait for the next generation. So they had to be in the wilderness another 40 years until that generation died off. So the new generation goes in. They see the walls of Jericho fall and they see so many wonderful things. And what do they do? Well, according to these verses, they became like their parents. They became like their fathers, the previous generations. Now, we would like to think that we're always going to improve and we would like to think that we're better. But in fact, how is it that we end up? We get to a point to where when we bury our parents, have you ever been to a funeral where someone buries their mother or their father and they testify, boy, that was the best dad anybody could ever ask for, the best mom anyone would ask for. Well, they didn't think that when they were 17. They didn't think that when they were in their 20s, most likely. Wisdom and time kind of made them have a, a better uh, feel and a better 
thought about their parents and the way that they were parented. And that's why sometimes we sort of rebel against those things and we say, I'm not going to be like my old man and I'm not going to be like my mom. I'm going to be different and I'm going to do it right. And then when we get to the time where they pass on, we look back and say, boy, they were the best. Well, if they were, why didn't we follow them? And then we also have these times when we have some things that come out of our mouth and out of our life where we go, oh, that sounded just like dad. That sounded just like mom. In fact, we tend to become like what we focus on. Even if a person looks at their parents and says, I will never be like them, you're probably going to become like them because what you gaze at is what you become. That's why the Bible calls us to look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, because we want to become like Him. We don't want to make mom or dad the standard or grandma and grandpa the standard or anything like that. It's Jesus. And so these people became like their fathers when they probably had every intention of never being like them. That's what I'm trying to say. And so... When we look at these situations and we look at the generations of Israel and we find them constantly, constantly being the same, no matter how much things would change, it would still be the same. God is angry with them and they are constantly provoking Him to anger with their idolatry and with their faithlessness. Why did that happen? And here's what my summation is going to be because they may have taught their children how to follow through on the rituals, but the children, their hearts never were in it. And the reason their hearts weren't in it is because, to be honest, their parents' hearts weren't really in it. And that's why the very people that come out of Egypt under the leadership of Moses, the very people that walk through the Red Sea, are the same ones that demand of Aaron, build us a golden calf. And why Aaron did it? I'll never fully understand that. Isn't that interesting that they were so close to seeing the power of God and Moses is on the mountain meeting with God and what are they doing? They're reverting to idolatry. And all the way through the Old Testament, all the way when you get to the times of Jeremiah and Isaiah and even into the minor prophets, what is happening there? Same song, second verse. The heart is not really in it. They go through the rituals, but there's always something more intriguing, always something that they're looking to, and always influenced to go away from God rather than toward the Lord. Now, you and I can kind of understand that because we understand depravity, and we also understand the activity of the enemy. The enemy is always tempting us with the forbidden fruit, we might say, the enemy is always trying to persuade us that there's a better way that God is holding out on us and we have this tendency to look elsewhere. We have this tendency to discount what God says and what God has done and we tend to stray. In fact, Isaiah said, all we like sheep have gone astray and we've turned everyone to our own way. And the only remedy is the next part of the verse. But God laid the iniquity of us all on Christ. In other words, you need a sin bearer. You need someone to make you right with God, to pay the penalty for your sins. And therein comes the gospel, the good news of the grace of God. All of us are failures when it comes to pleasing God. All of us have committed treason. All of us have provoked Him to anger. And it's only because of the blood of Jesus that we are shielded from all of that. 
Well, that's what's happening here. And notice that as Asaph uh, recounts these things and as he talks about them, notice this, and here's the way I'm kind of framing the passage. A change of location does not guarantee a change of heart. Notice how the very first words in these verses we're looking at, it says, yet they provoked him. What does it mean yet? Because it ties into the verse we left off with last week. Last week we looked at them and where were they? They were dwelling in the land and they were dwelling in their own tents. They were dwelling in their own houses, in other words. And so as they were doing that, you would think, well, this is going to be great. I mean, they're no longer slaves. They're no longer in Egypt. They're no longer being beaten. They're no longer having to make bricks. They're no longer having to gather straw. They're free people now. But you notice that when they got out of Egypt, they still had problems honoring and obeying God in the wilderness. Well, we might say, yeah, but the wilderness, boy, that was a long 40 years, and that was pretty tough. But you get them into the promised land, everything's going to be different. But you find here that Asaph's point is that even when they got into the promised land, nothing really changed. Because a change of location doesn't guarantee a change of heart. Now, we all think it does. And you and I think the same thing. There are a lot of people that go through a divorce because they say, if I could just get a new wife, a different wife, my life would be so much different. If I had a different husband, life would be different. Children are saying, if I could just get away and go to college and be on my own, everything would be different. I mean, that's the way it is. Some people say, if I could get to a new church, if I could get to a new house, if I could get to a new job, if I could live in a different part of the country, then I would be happy and then I could settle down and really serve God. But the example here is that even the children of Israel getting into Canaan, even that did not change their heart. So we've got to understand that. Your child may be rebellious, and it's not because of uh, the teacher that he has. If it just could get him or her in a different class with a different teacher. See, we've got to reject that kind of thing. If we could get them in a different school, if we get them in a different youth group, if we could get them somewhere else. No, they'll just take their problems with them. The second thing that I noticed in reading these verses is that um, the Bible tells us here that even knowledge doesn't change things. Here's, here's the, uh, what I want to say. Knowing the truth does not guarantee a change of heart. You know, a lot of people have had their kids in church every time the doors were open. I've run into some people. I've run into some uh, old friends. And they said, yeah, we were in church every time the doors are open and they can't get life together they can't manage their finances they can't take care of their kids they can't keep a relationship going what's going on there well if we're not careful all we do is moralize our children and we restrain our children and we expect things out of our children because they're in church and so we have them in all of these different programs and we have them in all of these different times of teaching and all of these different activities and then as soon as they get to be out on their own they do whatever it is that they want to do. You see they know the truth but it's not doing anything for them. Am I saying don't expose them to truth? Not at all. Jesus said you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. But is that all of the time? Well the example here in the children of Israel is that they knew the truth. Notice that the scripture tells us here 
They knew and they had the testimonies of God. What is a testimony? Testimony is something you say or something that you write down, and a lot of times it has legal implications. If you're called before a court, you are called to testify about what you have seen, what you have heard, or what you know. If you submit it in writing, brought before the court as a testimony. Well, they had the testimonies of God. In other words, this generation, they had the law of God, the word of God, written down, and they also had it in oral form. They had been taught that. The testimonies of the Lord were given to, the, to them, and yet what did they do? The same thing that their uh, previous generations did. And knowing the truth, being exposed to the truth, doesn't really do anything for you unless the truth sets you free. Unless the truth changes your heart. Hey, moms, dads, grandparents, Sunday school teachers, Awana leaders, youth workers, whoever you are and whatever you're doing, grandparents, whatever. If we are not touching the hearts of the next generation, then all they're going to do is become harder more indifferent, and maybe even deceived because they know the right answers, but their heart has never been changed. Someone wrote a song uh, years ago that says, I'm tired of being stirred, but not being changed. And there are a lot of people today that if you tell them or confront them or ask them about something in their life, they can tell you what their problem is and they can tell you what they need to do to change. They just don't have the motivation to ever do it. Why? Because their heart's not in it. There was a guy that back in the 1950s, he went to Knott's Berry Farm, and somebody asked him, what was it that you really remember out of all of that? And he said, man, I saw the funniest things. What was it? There were ducks wearing roller skates. Person said, really? And he goes, yeah. He said, God is my witness, ducks on roller skates. And they said, I didn't know a duck could do that. And the guy said, oh, they could do it, but you could also tell their heart wasn't in it. And some of us are like ducks on roller skates. We go to church, we go to Sunday school, we believe the doctrines, we even instruct our children in them, but somehow it falls flat because they can tell our heart's not really in it. And when it doesn't impact our heart, it doesn't impact their heart, even when it is true. And so they did not keep his testimonies. Why? Because they didn't really care. It wasn't that they didn't think they were true. They knew it was true. They knew all of that. They just didn't care. It didn't move them. And uh, whatever God said was just no big deal. We'll do what we want to do. That's why James 4 17 in the New Testament says, Whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, to him it is sin. Because it is possible to know the right thing, to know the truth, and not to live the truth. Why? Because it really didn't impact your heart. Number three, going on down to verse uh, 57, Seeing the failure of others does not guarantee a changed heart. And that's why it says, but turned back, they went the wrong way, in other words, and they acted unfaithfully like their fathers. They acted unfaithfully like their fathers. That's why we've got to set the bar high. That's why we've got to 
watch because we know our children are probably going to be a little bit below us. And if we keep lowering the bar generation after generation after generation, then the ones that follow us are going to lower the bar even more. We've got to be careful about all of this. And this is the strange thing about humanity. I don't exactly know how to explain it, but I do know this. Alcoholics, when they raise children, they tend to raise future alcoholics. Now, wouldn't you think that if you were raised in a home with an alcoholic mother, an alcoholic father, a drug-addicted father, a drug-addicted mother, that you would say, I don't want anything to do with anything even remotely close to that. And to be fair, there are some that do that. You know some and I know some. But did you know that statistically, the majority of those who are raised in an alcoholic home become alcoholics? Did you know that child abuse tends to run in families? It would seem to me that if I were abused as a child, the one thing that I would do whenever I was privileged to become a parent is never, never to physically, emotionally, or verbally abuse my child. But did you know that statistically that's not the case? It tends to run in families. I've done a lot of studies of men particularly that are in prison for abusing their children, and when they hear their story, they find out that they themselves were victims of abuse. What's our problem? Why don't we learn from all of that? Because, number three, seeing the failure of others does not necessarily guarantee a change of heart. We just don't learn. We're just evidently not all that smart. There's something wrong with us that we tend to imitate failure. But think about it. Whenever somebody has marital problems, who do they run to? They generally don't go to somebody who's been married 50 years. They go to someone who's been divorced five times. And they try to commiserate and they try to find a reason to do what they did to get out of an unhappy situa situation. We compound our failure, we repeat our failures, and we repeat mistakes. Somebody told me one time when I was in my 20s, all of us are going to make mistakes. Let's make some new ones. But you know what humanity does? We do the same thing over and over and over and over and over again. And then we have the audacity to tell our children, do as I say, not as I do. Learn from my mistakes. Well, I suppose it's possible, but this generation didn't do it. And most generations that we know don't do that either. We need to have some successful things put in front of us. We need to see how things really ought to be. And that's up to our generation. No matter what we've done in the past, let's make up our mind from this day forward, I'm going to be filled with the Spirit of God. From this day forward, I'm going to live according to the Word of God. From this day forward, I want to walk with God and I want to walk in authenticity. I want to walk in truth and I want to be able to be transparent and uh, let others see Jesus in me, the Redeemer and the one who empowers and strengthens us and takes us down a new path. You see where I'm going with all of this? Because just because, because the failure that we may exhibit in front of someone does not necessarily mean that our children will hate it so much they'll turn from it. They may actually follow in our footsteps. And this is why we've got to love God with all of our heart. We've got to love the church. We've got to love the truth of the Word of God. And we've got to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. 
because that's what our children really need to see. And that brings me down then to the fourth point, and the final one is, and this will be kind of stunning maybe to you, but notice this, the wrath of God does not guarantee a changed heart. Look down at verse 58. For they provoked him to anger with their high places and moved him to jealousy with their carved images. Now, if Israel did that one time and God got angry with them and judged them and they never did it again, that would be one thing. But you notice in the Old Testament, it's over and over and over and over again. You know, in the book of Judges, it says that there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And there's like, I believe it's a six-time thing where there's a enslavement and then a cycle that ends up with God sending someone to liberate them, Gideon and people like that, right? But yet every time they revert back to the same thing, back to enslavement, back to compromise, back to disobeying God. And they go through that cycle over and over again. You know what? It seems to me like the New Testament could be just a, a, a bigger and longer span of time of the book of Judges. Same thing over and over again. What did the prophets preach? What did the prophets warn them against? God's not going to put up with this. If you don't get right with him and return to him, then you'll be driven out of the land. Someone will come and take you captive. And so God would do things like send drought. Would they turn to God? No, they would turn to idols. This God thing's not working. Let's go try what Baal has to offer. God would send pestilence, disease. Would they run to him? No, they would say, well, this God thing hadn't been working. We've been doing Passovers and we've been going to the temple and it's not working. Let's go see what uh, Baal has to offer. And then God would send insects to destroy the crop. And what would they do? Run to God? No, they would run to Baal, run to their Canaanite neighbors over and over and over and over again, all through the prophets. Were there times of revival? Yeah, but they were pretty short. And after the revival time was over, what did it do? They reverted back to where they were before. This is just a constant, constant pattern over and over and over. And no matter how many times God judged them, punished them, no matter how many times they saw the thunder and lightning from Mount Sinai, they still built their golden calves. And this is why God had to be gracious toward us because all of us are just like Israel. We all go our own way and once the pressure's off, we revert back to what we were before. And that's why I've been challenging us to make sure we take advantage of this time we're going through now to get to know the Lord and to connect with our families and to plan how we're going to be when all of this is over because the new normal for a child of God ought to be a better normal because all of us need to improve, don't we? And yet we're like so many times the Old Testament saints. And when the pressure's off, we revert back to what we were before. Because you see, it really is a matter of the heart. Let me read you some scripture here and have you think about this. The heart has to be guarded. If you're not guarding your heart, then you're going to be in trouble. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23 says, Guard your heart with all diligence. For from it flow the springs of life. 
What you are in your heart is what you really are. No matter how much you try to cover it up. And uh, Solomon says, quit wearing a mask and deal with the real issue. Get your heart right. And then you don't have to worry about your thoughts or your actions or anything like that. Guard that heart. The heart also has to be evaluated truthfully. Now here's why we have to have God to search our heart. Proverbs 21 verse 2 says, Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. It's not just about what you see or what you project. It's not just about what other people see or what they think about you. What does the Lord see when he looks in your heart? For as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. So what are you? Also remember that the heart must be taught to trust. Your heart is not a naturally trusting thing. And by heart, I don't mean the physical pump. I mean the real you. You're not a trusting person, especially when it comes to God. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make straight your paths. And so this is so important to know that it's boiling down to faith. It's boiling down to trust. Why did the Israelites sin against God after all He did for them? Because they really didn't trust Him. Oh yeah, He gave us water at this point, but will He give us water later? He gave us food at this point, but will He give us food later? Will it be the right kind of food? Remember, over and over and over and over it was like that. And every time you get past that, even when they're in the land, they've got the temple or at least the tabernacle. And what happens? Every time a Philistine shows up, every time there's an attack, every time there's a drought, every time there's a problem, every time they get afraid, what do they do? Well, sometimes they would run to the Lord. But remember we read earlier in Psalm 78, when that happened, many times it was insincere. They flattered God with their lips, but their heart wasn't steadfast. Most of the time, though, you'll read through the Old Testament, what did they do? They ran to the idols. They ran, there's got to be something that's got to work better than where we are now because they really didn't trust God's Word. Good or bad, positive or negative, they just really didn't believe. And there's the challenge for us because the Bible says in the New Testament, without faith it is impossible to please God. It all boils down to this. And so if we want to be changed and we want to have a positive impact on upcoming generations, our heart has to be changed. And we've got to set the right example, not just in action, but in our heart toward the things of God. And that boils down to this. Do you have faith? Do you really believe God? And do you really believe His Word? Or are you ready to bail? Every time something looks a little bit off and every time it seems like that the Word of God can't possibly work in this situation, where do you run and where do you go? And if our hearts are constantly straying, no wonder we're not making an impact on the next generation. So let's start now. That's why Asaph writes this, and that's why Asaph writes it not to the children. He writes it to us, those who are teaching the children, those of us who are an example to the children. So what do we do? Well, we haven't been perfect. Let's admit that. And then secondly, let's surrender to the Lord now so that for the rest of our days, the children are going to hear out of our mouths, out of our lives, the praises of God 
where we started off with in this particular psalm. So I want to challenge you to look at that. Griping and complaining are praises of God. Doubt and fear are faith, trust, and hope. Are we walking like Paul said? Now abides three things. Faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. Which tells me that if I'm loving God the way that I should, hope and faith won't be a problem. And that all boils down to, is your heart right with God? And that's where my prayer is, that by the grace of God, you will have a heart that is right with Him and fully committed to Him for the glory of God and to impact this next generation. Thank you so much, and I pray that the Lord will feed your soul and that He will bless you and guide you into those green pastures. Oh, how we need them, don't we? God bless you. Thank you once again.